0: I'm Josh Cooperman, and this is Convo by Design with an Earth Day special episode. Yes, I think Earth Day is silly, but the message behind it is of critical importance to everyone in design, architecture, and those who live on Earth. It seems like there's a day for everything, am I right? That being said, some points of interest. The first Earth Day was April 22nd, 1970. Many say it coincides with the beginning of the environmental movement. Uh, In January, 1969, there was a massive oil spill off the coast of Santa Barbara, California. The date for Earth Day is April 22nd, and it was selected because it falls on a weekday following spring break, allowing greater uh, student participation. And let's be honest, It makes sense because young people have always cared more about their environment than those who have less time to spend there, and it makes sense. This Earth Day in 1970 was a momentous occasion, followed by decades of apathy and carrying on with business as usual. I think the message is really important, and I believe that this is yet another problem that will be solved by the designers the architects, and the product manufacturers that make up our industry. According to the EPA, 27% of greenhouse gases are caused by electricity pollution, 28% from transportation, 22% from industry. As the design machine continues to produce greater efficiencies and uses of renewable energy combined with fewer off-gassing materials, limited waste, etc., the numbers will subside. I, I, I believe that. At the same time, there is a strong connection between sustainable, clean design and wellness. These two ideas should go hand in glove and as such, it makes perfect sense that this correlation exists. With that, today you are going to hear from Steve Pallorand, founder and principal designer of Homefront Build, a design build firm with wellness and environmental design at the core of their work. In Another Life, I hosted a show called the green detective. I know this subject and I don't agree with everything. And you will hear that in my conversation with Steve. But it's important to note that we don't have to agree about everything to agree that the changes for greater environmental consideration in design is important and necessary. Are you subscribing to the podcast? If not, please do. So you get every episode of Convo by Design automatically as soon as they're published. You can find Convo by Design everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. And now you can find us on designnetwork.org, a destination dedicated to podcasts, all things design and architecture. So make sure to check it out. Oh, and happy Earth Day. Convo by Design is presented by Walker Zanger, a fantastic company and an equally fantastic design partner. While the Walker Zanger brand was built on the promise to inspire designers and architects to do their best work, there's far more to it than that. Yes, that promise is fulfilled every day through a commitment to provide the best ceramic, glass, stone, porcelain, and concrete surfaces and finishes, but at the heart is a family owned and operated business that provides stunning surfaces for a well-designed home and does it to make designers and architects do their best work for their clients. Walker Zanger started in 1952, and they are absolutely one of the best trade partners a designer can have. Check out their newest collaborative line with designer Pieta Donovan, a a collection of cement and ceramic tiles inspired by the patterns and colorways of the 1970s and created with a comfortable modernity. Walker Zanger is on the cutting edge of design, featuring products for every style and architectural feel you can create. And they provide homeowners with the materials that dream kitchens and baths are made of check out any of their 14 showrooms across the country or shop online walkerzanger.com i mean really if you think about it though earth day shouldn't it be you know you should only celebrate earth days on the days that you're actually living on earth (laughs) earth year yeah well it's like it's like mother's day and father's day right yeah. you know treat your parents well all year long and then you're done yeah.
1: it's
0: one of those yeah. things um yeah that's but, why I
1: don't get why all these people are trying to explore you know how to get off the planet and stuff it's like no you know all these uh wealthy billion trillionaires you know it's just uh we we have to figure out how to live on this planet first
0: so let's start there cuz that's a that's a great place for for us to start um i, I think over the years it's been really interesting because sustainable design has is sort of a, the next iteration of green. And I think everyone just got so tired of the word green, green this, green that. It's kind of like organic at the grocery store. It just became like, nobody really knows what that means anymore. But it's interesting if you think about it, and this is kind of where I want to go with you. When When you started the business, as you continued to build, develop design, Sustainability is 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 at the core. It's a core tenet of of what you do. How long has it been like that?
1: Um, well, we uh, actually started uh, by buying a, a historic home in a historic neighborhood, uh, and so I worked that market for a while, and that's how I got the business going. And then um, what we did was we. In order to work on these uh, historic projects, craftsman home, Victorians, uh, when a uh, house was being demolished, a historic house was being demolished, we would go in and we would uh, take that house apart so we could save all the parts, framing, siding, flooring. Uh, because that way when you were working on a craftsman Victorian or Spanish colonial revival and you needed siding that was uh, redwood with uh, mill marks from the, uh, you know, uh, the way they used to uh, saw the lumber back then, or you needed real two by fours, something like that, you know, we had the material. And so then, you know, we began to realize that, wow, you know, we're the greenest people around because instead of bringing in new, Uh, materials to uh, a job we're sort of recycling within the community. So we're reducing the carbon footprint of transportation. We're reducing the carbon footprint of those new materials because the carbon that went into uh, manufacturing those materials is already in the atmosphere, you know, hundred years ago or something. So so we were encouraging people to reuse existing structures and adapt those. And that adaptive reuse is a very, with green products, we realized we're sort of the greenest people around. And that began uh, the journey because then at at one point I was out in our yard and I thought, oh my goodness, I have three craftsman houses stacked over there, two Victorians. I can actually make new houses out of this strategy. And so that began the investigation because uh, in, you know, green uh, uh, design construction and stuff, we usually are just talking about the operational carbon footprint of a house, how much it Uh, energy we uh, can salvage from the sun and how much we use to live and live in our houses so but we don't talk about the uh, carbon footprint of the structure itself so that was the idea was to expand the conversation uh beyond operational into embodied carbon footprint the carbon footprint of the structure itself because as we you know uh need more desperately to uh, lower our carbon footprint. We have to look for new areas. We can't just count on uh, putting solar arrays on a house and feel that we're gonna get to our uh, sustainability goals. Let's,
0: let's sort of reset the table here a little bit because I think it's important to note, we're not talking about doing a wholesale change in the way building is done. Instead of that, it's kind of a, a, a rethink about the way that it's done. Um, about sustaining materials, about building practices, about um, looking for ways and being conscious of ways to do it. And I think that there are some misconceptions out there that I'd like to clear up right away. Um, And maybe maybe they're not misconceptions. You tell me. I think many people feel that doing construction smartly, like you're talking about, is always going to be more expensive i think it it means that there's way way more preparation required to to do the work and it's a it's a wholesale change in the way that construction remodeling building is done is that the case
1: um well there's a lot of things unpacking that um but uh the basic uh if the basic question is, is it always more expensive to do uh, to live greener? You know, the answer is no. Some things are more expensive. Some things are cheaper. Um, and uh, uh, and some things, of course, have an upfront cost, but over time you save money. So that's uh, you know, there's different ways to look at that. Uh, I think the main thing is that. Uh, in residential construction remodel uh, we really don't provide our uh, clients or people with the so it's about education because we really don't um, provide people with the information they need to make these decisions um, which is why we created that one website uh, with uh, open source tools the sustainablebuild.com so people could look at how to lower their uh, carbon footprint and um, what the potential cost might be. You know, my great example is if you go out to buy a new car right now, you know, you can look at a, a Bolt, you can look at an F-150 and you can uh, evaluate your the carbon uh footprint you're going to have by buying an all-electric vehicle versus a low-mileage gas vehicle. But in residential construction and remodel, you know, we don't offer those tools. So uh, one thing is education. It's just people need to uh, know how to evaluate their decisions. And so um, that's that's a big one. The other one is that in residential uh, construction, You know, it's a lot about the subcontractors. Uh, Any subcontractor who comes into a house, uh, uh, you know, HVAC, plumbing, electric, whatever, uh, you know, needs to come in low to get the job. And so, trying a new material, trying to do a, a heat pump, hot water heater where they've never done it before, trying to do a heat pump heater when they've never done it before, trying to do some new system when they've never done it before, they're gonna screw up, there's gonna be a lot of callbacks, they're gonna lose money. So it discourages people from trying these new systems. So sort of, um, you know, I think the main thing is, uh, is, is education so that people and uh, uh, professionals can evaluate these decisions better.
0: When it comes to materials. So there's kind of two, two areas I want to explore here. The first is new product and materials. The second is, um, as it relates specifically to existing materials, what you can versus what you cannot use in construction and new, and I don't want to call it new development, but remodeling. What can she, what can't you use what can't you recycle um
1: there um well it when we're taking a building apart um the uh drywall plaster things like that are uh you know uh we can't reuse um uh there is a sort of uh and then tile um so uh but there's always ways around that. So you can't reuse tile, but then you can make a choice when you're buying uh, new tile, which everybody's gonna do. You can make a choice to buy tile from a local manufacturer. Uh, for example, we use a uh, manufacturer who, um, who makes their uh, tile bodies in California and glazes them in California. So therefore they're done Uh, locally in um, areas where, you know, there's pollution controls, So um, there are materials that you just can't ever uh, recycle and reuse. Tiles is the greatest example, but you can... um, you can find ways to uh, reduce your carbon footprint. You can also, you know, with appliances, plumbing fixtures, there's low water flow uh, appliances. We love to get people in bathrooms to use the touchless uh, water faucets. So there's all sorts of choices in new materials. Um, people just have to be educated and the professionals have to be educated too.
0: So you, within, within residential construction, when you're re- removing original hand-sewn beams, you, can, can you reuse those? Uh,
1: you can reuse them. There are, you have to, um, the trick for us, and uh, I don't know all the different jurisdictions, different states, but in California, uh, what happens is that when we're doing uh, demoing or deconstructing these old buildings um, they're often it's often it's beautiful lumber it's old growth Douglas fir. you can't get lumber like that anymore so it's it's just you know it's a crime that this stuff usually just gets hauled off to the dump however that lumber was uh, was uh, uh, cut uh, and milled before the grading system, the modern grading system. So in that case, what we have to do is we we used to uh, hire a grader, a lumber grader, to come in and grade the lumber, uh, and that means sort of going through a stack and you know banging a evaluating each piece. Now we have that done in house to create efficiencies. But even when we had to bring in the outside uh, grader, when you take a whole house apart and they're just going through you know a large stack of lumber, it ended up being just a couple hundred dollars for the person to come in for a day or two and grade all your lumber. So, there are little tricks like that, but uh, for the most part, um, you know, reusing the lumber uh, is one of the greatest things we got an old house. Now, in old, old houses, they also have, in in at least in our, you know, area, the uh, roof sheeting was one by six and one by four, and then you can reuse that for flooring and all sorts of other uses. So, there's a lot you can get out of, uh, you know, an existing old house when you're taking it apart
0: interesting isn't it and and these are things you know and and it also goes back to one of the other things that you know in Southern California it's prevalent and I think it's prevalent because it gets so much attention whereas in other parts of the country I don't think they necessarily pay a lot of attention to saving iconic structures or architecture worth saving, uh, perhaps modifying instead of scraping and starting over. And it feels to me like that's getting a little bit more attention. Are you seeing that as well?
1: Uh, no. Um, I think that uh, your point there is actually, exa- you know, that's exactly how I came to it was I came to it through the historic market. I also have a architectural history, uh, at, you know, a degree. So, you know, uh, coming at it from working with historic homes, I understood the value of this old growth redwood and that it was old growth redwood and Douglas fir. So, um, you know, uh, that's how I uh, came at this whole uh, practice. But uh, for the most part, um, the market is, often mostly driven by developers and developers uh just have a cost structure and it's about demo get it out get it to the dump clear as quickly as possible i've got a loan i've got to start in you know three days so um it's it's often very difficult for us to get in and uh you know demo those jobs because it takes us like a week or two instead of three days so uh, you know the code doesn't really there isn't an awareness of the financial advantage and um, and the carbon advantage and I think that has to be addressed through you know unfortunately through codes.
0: It's it's interesting though <clears throat> you know there's kind of two sides to this equation right you you have the codes and here here in California the codes are so restrictive you know I, I was reading an article the other day which basically was talking about this this flood of commerce going, you know, people going from California to Arizona to buy their toilets. It's just, it's incredible. Um, sometimes it feels like you can over-legislate uh, and over-regulate, which which drives new markets elsewhere, which kind of defeats the purpose. At the same time, you have name and shame, you know, with what, you know, what Ron Woodson and Jamie Rummerfield are doing with SIA, Save Iconic Architecture. Every time a developer comes in, and starts messing with an iconic structure there's a name and shame and there's there's a lot that goes with that and that seems to be a pretty effective strategy not in total but i think what it does is it, it it draws attention to what's being done now outside of california new york uh and some other areas you know there are areas like austin texas which has a a healthy respect for their past and their past architecture. And I think that there are some cities around the, around the country that are starting to do this more and more Uh, with, you know, it seems like it feels like there is more attention being given, not just to green and sustainable building, but also saving the iconic structures. And I think it's hard to deconstruct that and disassociate the materials that make up the structure as well as the the um, the artistry that went into the structure itself in the first place.
1: Yeah, I mean, as also as uh, our urban centers become uh, revalued and people return to the urban center, there's uh, a desire to preserve those. Um, so I think also, you know, the demographic trends help uh, in uh, architectural preservation sustainability. Um, You know, I think the codes are uh, the codes are driven by two things. One, they're driven by, you know, idealistic legislation, like in California, you know, it's low water use. And uh, it's not it's, uh, you know, originally how the energy codes, you know, evolved in California was just looking at expansion of population and how that, you know, how are we going to come up with all this electricity and water? So a lot of our energy codes are just driven by population and demographics. So why do people go to Arizona? They go to Arizona to get a uh, toilet, which has more than a one point you know, one or one point two gallon flush, right? Um, some of this is just that the uh you know these uh you know showers low flow showers and things like that have a bad reputation they're actually Bec- but because of the commercial market, because of government requirements that in, uh, that in uh, commercial buildings, we have low flow toilets, we have, uh, you know, uh, the touchless faucets and all this kind of stuff, um, the manufacturers are driving, are already having to produce this stuff. So I think what they're going to find, or what they're starting to find is that like, hey, we're putting all this R&D to make it a, a amazing 1.0 gallon flush toilet, but we should sell, we should expand our, this is not, Opportunity to expand into the residential market too, and double or triple our uh, our the footprint of our marketing. So um, you know the government regulations sort of help create a market, and then it's really up to the manufacturers to expand that into the uh, into the residential. But um, those, you know, uh, when I first moved to California and, and had my first experience with a low flow shower, I mean, it was painful. It was like, you know, it was like, you know, it was like being washed with lasers, you know, it was so sharp. But now, you know, you have rain heads that, uh, that are very, that they've they've developed ways to make this low flow experience very pleasant. So I have, you know, a low flow uh, shower head now and it's very nice. Uh, so, you know, and um, again, with the toilets, they just, there's a demand, a requirement by government, and a lot of that is education and exposure to people in the residential market that actually the low flow toilets now are actually function very nicely. I mean, they have cyclonic action. They are uh, they are glazing the bowls differently to make them, uh, you know, uh to make them, um, you know, more slippery, shall we say. Um, So, you know, there's a lot of research going into it because of government and code requirements. And I think that you'll find more of that stuff moving into the residential market. But it's education, it's people need to know, you know, it's like in the, my great, uh, you know, examples in the Victorian period, you know, people had gas lighting and to switch to electric lighting, I I don't know that I really want to do that. I mean, my gas lighting is like, I know it. And there's some new electric thing, you know, there's some quack medicinery associated out there with Electroshock. You know, Eh, I think I'm going to stay with my gas lighting. Same thing with, you know, gas cooktops. You know, when you look at a gas cooktop, Think about the interior air pollution that is caused by burning gas in your house versus an induction cooktop. Which is induction cooktop? All most 90% of the energy goes into the cooking vessel, you know. Versus why are our kitchens so hot? Our kitchens are so hot because gas, you know, only 40% or something or less of the energy goes into the cooking vessel. The rest goes into the air and heats up our kitchen and produces all this interior air pollution. But yet, one of my hardest struggles is to get people to, to leave what they're familiar with, the gas range, you know, with, uh, with, uh, you know, commercial cooking, you know, BTUs and switch to a more efficient, uh, better cooking, uh, product, which is the induction cooktop. So, you know, a lot of it's education and, and convincing people that these things, exposing them to these things.
0: I think though, that that's only a, that's only part of it. That's only a fraction of it. And I, I appreciate that you bring up two things, lighting and cooking, because I think that those two areas really like water. Um, They're good examples of this right now. I, I will challenge the idea on cooking, because as someone who loves to cook, I will tell you, cooking with induction is not as satisfying to me as cooking with gas. Cooking with gas is a, is more precise. It is, it's a better experience. Now, there, there are things that you have, all the things that you mentioned about interior air pollution and heating up the kitchen. And you're a hundred percent correct. You're, you're absolutely right. But I think that there's gotta be a balance there. And I'm wondering if that seems to be the thing, right? And you can look to light bulbs, you can look to shower heads, but you can look to light bulbs really. And I had this conversation yesterday, the, the original incandescent bulb right it was hot it was it it was it there are a lot of things wrong with that with that particular light bulb but they didn't fix it right away you know they they went to a couple of modified versions and then they went to cfl's and cfl's were, were simply horrendous and then the 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 led when the led first came out it was you know that was not a solution for anything that that people wanted out of their lighting. It didn't it didn't solve a problem except for the fact that it that it consumed less energy. Now with new techniques in in piping and new techniques with the bulbs themselves and the things that they're able to do with LED, simply amazing, amazing. I haven't seen that same attention to detail uh, put towards cooking. And, and I think maybe it's because you, the appliance companies know, now don't get me wrong. I think that the appliance companies have done some simply amazing things. Um, I know Gen Air, Mila, Sub-Zero Wolf, they've done some very cool things with their kitchen appliances. I think that, you know, that's one of those things where the market has to, ha- education, education, You're absolutely right. But isn't there also responsibility to continue making it better in, in what works the same way that you use the shower head as an example. Like, you know, I remember those original low flow shower heads and you're right. I mean, it was like someone was bathing you with nails. Right. right. But, but now, you know, there has to be an education process. The R and D has to, has to improve. And I feel like where we are in time right now with the backlog of materials, it's going to be a little harder to refocus ourselves on sustainability.
1: Uh, You know, let's complain about government, let's complain about uh, the codes, but oh, why do we have LED lighting? Why do we have this amazing innovation LED lighting, government regulations? In California, You have, you cannot put in, you have to put in LED lighting with a dimmer. That's now the regulation. That is driving the market. Why do we have amazing LED lighting now with all different color temperatures? You can choose 3,000, 2,700. You know, you have all this product out there. Recess lights, you know, just the amount of, uh, you know, the amount of opportunities, uh, you know, the options out there are just wonderful. That's because of government regulation. Government regulation drove, manufacturers to innovate. Why do we not have as much innovation in cooktops? Because government regulation doesn't regulate your cooktop. So therefore people are, you know, know, we're forced to come up with amazing showerhead options. We're forced to come up with amazing lighting options because the code pushed us there. And what we have to do is we have to thank the California government because just like with autos, California is such a huge market. The changes we make then uh become integrated into the whole national market anyway Ch- you know the biggest challenge for the le- previous uh presidential administration was to try to kill the California environmental regulations for cars because they knew if they did that that would change the whole national market well the same thing is happening in led lighting we're now getting such innovation because of the California uh plumbing and and lighting codes that it's that it's uh you know it's it's offering People in Arizona, where there are less codes, options in LED lighting now that didn't exist, but kitchens are not regulated. So therefore that's going to, uh, you know, allow people like you to say that, hey, you know, I like my gas uh, range better. I would argue I have an induction cooked up and I live with it. And it's amazing. I can, on the boost function, I can boil water in a minute. Uh, you know, you have to get r- used to the, digital thing of a one through 10 versus the analog visual of turning your burner up and down. But there's no, and my wife and I cook a lot, there's just nothing that we sacrifice in our induction cooktop. But you're right. And and I have this one that's a freedom top where you can, it's not like the old electric burners where you had four points, but I have this thing where you can just move it around. And unlike a gas top, you have all this freedom to move things around and, and it memorizes what your uh, temperature was as you move the the cooking uh, vessel around on your cooktop. So my argument would be, I actually think the induction cooktop is great, better, but you're right. There could be more innovation in that and also more drive price down, which would, but right now people are not required. There is no requirement to move to electromagnetic cooktops. Therefore, you're going to see less development in that area, right?
0: well and what's interesting is when it comes to induction i i think that the the greatest move towards induction is not going to come through education or or regulation per se i actually think that's going to come through design because the fact that you can you can basically put the mechanism under so many different types of sources where you don't actually have to have burners anymore You know the the physical burner where you can actually now actually put it under a a slab or tile um, material. What designers are going to be able to Mm -hmm. do with this is simply amazing. I work with a a designer who I've interviewed her recently. She's working on an outdoor grill, utilizing induction and using an outdoor surface to do it, which is it, it just it completely changes the style and look of an outdoor kitchen or an indoor kitchen. It's amazing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, the thing is that to get the scale to drive, you know, and to, you know, to integrate to the market, you know, like with the low flow shower heads or toilets, things like that, you know, that came from government regulation. So I think there is going to be design and innovation in the cooktops, but it's going to be slower.
0: Well, I I get that. And at the same time, I, I will just say this. We can have a debate about what is more eco- ecologically friendly or green and and we can have a debate about what someone's preferences are i think when it comes to actual performance if you could show me and and we this is not the debate i mean this is the conversation right this is how ideas are are crafted and generated and, and gain attention i think if you could show me a single commercial kitchen that used induction. I would be very interested to see that and see the performance. I think that there's a reason commercial kitchens, restaurants do not use induction because the chefs don't like it as much. The chefs, and to your point, perhaps it's because that's what they know. But when it came to lighting, restaurant designers incorporate new lighting techniques. They incorporate other strategies, low flow water, they incorporate other strategies to to take advantage of these things, but induction has not replaced gas. And I I don't know, you know, that's one of the things that, you know, I. it feels like that's one of the areas where one needs to pick their battles.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, you know, we are very adaptable people and when we're forced to use only LED lighting we come up with these amazing options. I bet if we were forced to only use induction cooktops, the market would evolve and and the cooks would adapt. Um, But, you know, the other thing is that uh, what we did on that one, uh, our, you know, website where we put up these uh, free calculators for open source calculators for people to use is that it's important to, uh, you know, for example, when you're looking at your kitchen remodel, let's say, how can I become greener my kitchen remodel? Well, maybe, you know, maybe it's, don't worry about your countertops. Don't worry about buying tile. Don't keep your gas range because the main thing is change out your water heater to a heat pump, hot water heater. That's, I think the kind of education we need to be concentrating on is it like, as you know maybe the induction cooktop it, the induction cooktop is good because it gets you off uh, a non-renewable resource into a renewable resource from a green point of view but the main thing in your kitchen remodel might be changing out your hot water heater so i think it's it's what we try to do in our practice is not be orthodox we're not lead we're not passive house we're do whatever you can get us get just go you know with your budget and your project improve yourself 10%, improve yourself 20%, improve yourself as much as you can. And, you know, you can, and then make choices that work with your budget, work with your values. And maybe it's, uh, but look at the impact of each of these choices so that you can make, you can make the best choice. You'll never be orthodox. You'll never be perfect. And we don't want people to be perfect. We just want people to be educated and making, you know, the best choice they can.
0: Listen, I think that that's the best place in the world to come from, and considering the industry, you know, I I think that the, I, I think you would probably agree with this. The the home industry, the the construction and build industry, is one of the, one of the, the biggest polluters, and the biggest sources of of you know, g- green issues, sustainable issues and pollution come from the home home industry, you know, all of the things that we put into, into the homes over time that we realize asbestos, you know, th- lead paint, things like this, it's like, you know, I don't know what you were thinking about at the time. And all of these have, have come to change. And now those have led to innovations like wellness. You know, what we're talking about is I think there's a correlation. If it's good for the planet, it tends to be better for the person who's who's living in in the structure anyway. and and you look at wellness in design. And Goli, Karimi, and I have talked about this in the past, and we talked about the benefits of you know low VOC paints. But now even more so, we talk about showers, right? The idea that a steam shower can can be used and and it's a spa-like experience. We're not talking about something that is that is using an overabundance. Of resources, water, electricity, to to function, it's something that does make a difference. We, you know, you talk about tile and stone and materials. It seem it feels like the industry is getting smarter.
1: Um, yes, uh, you know the. You know, when you look at uh, carbon emissions, forty percent of carbon emissions come from buildings. So you're right uh that's more than cars and uh i think industry combined i mean it's a massive it's almost half of our uh carbon footprint now that includes you know uh commercial and residential but residential carbon emissions and uh you know are um are huge but yet uh you can't you know the the struggle is how do you educate each consumer uh and that's you know that's the hard part right how do we touch each person in their individual, uh, you know, individual choices, and uh, that's the struggle because here we are, uh, you know, in 2021, and you know, uh, most uh, climate scientists say that uh, on present track, you know, uh, 2035. But some are now saying 2030 is the point where we have to make significant changes. That's only like you know that's nine, nine years away, right? And people are no longer looking at uh, a, you know, uh, one and a half degree <coughs> uh, climate change, but we think that we're gonna be over two degrees. In other words, we're looking at permanent climate disruption nine years from now, and yet we still, in the residential construction market, you know, remodel and construction market, we're just not, we're just acting like there's, there's nothing there's no impact. People don't understand the impact of their choice on a hot water heater. People don't understand the impact of their choice when they choose a new heating air conditioning system. Now people don't understand that. And uh, the professionals who come into your home, the small scale tradespeople, don't aren't educated and aren't incentivized to author, you know, offer those choices either. It's kind of appalling.
0: You know, I hear what you're saying, and I will. I will tell you. I think that a a big part of the problem is that most people don't. I mean let's let's be honest, Steve. P- most people don't care if if the planet heats up a half a degree or a degree, because most people don't equate that with the the things that personally affect them or haven't in the past. I think the fact that California and wildfires, you know, there used to be a wildfire. Now there's a wildfire season. Um, And now wildfire season is pretty much year round, which is a huge development. You look at Texas uh, and recent, you know, recent hurricane seasons between Harvey and Katrina, you know, having things happen closer together. I believe that people are now starting to realize that That climate change is is going to personally affect them. And as such, maybe now is a good idea to start making some changes. But I think, look, you're a, you have a degree in history, right? So I think looking at history is the best thing that somebody can do years ago, years and years ago, uh, when I was still in broadcast, I did a I had a show called The Green Detective that I did with uh, an actress Alexandra Paul, who was on. She was on Baywatch. She she's fantastic, and and she walks the walk. She was one of the first um, celebrities to have a an EV one, a, a GM electric vehicle. California Resources Board, uh, lobbied by the automotive industry and the petroleum industry, basically killed the EV one. And I mean, you can see at Begley, and you can you can see the the, the movie that came out about it. And um, what's really interesting is that car was, from a performance standpoint, outperformed any other vehicle on the road. It could beat a Corvette off the line, right? It used no gas. It was amazing. It was silent. It was efficient. It was extremely cool. And GM did it kind of as a lark Um, and realized that this could actually put them out of business. That's how they thought about it at the time. And everything was done to kill the program. It wasn't really until Tesla came out and made it cool. Tesla made electric vehicles cool. And that hadn't happened before. That's why people looked at the electric vehicle. And that's, by the way, that's why we're not having conversations really anymore about hydrogen or any of the other technologies that were being explored at the time, they're still out there, but you're not gonna have a hydrogen station, you know, in every in every town and every city, the infrastructure, it's just too much to do it. But electric vehicles, now the, the, the battery that goes into the home, you can see the process and you can see how once they made it cool, then people started competing for the vehicles. They wanted to be on the list. They wanted, the, when the S came out, everyone had to have that everyone wanted what was next because it was made cool. And I, I don't think that there's any other way, you know, you can, you can regulate something, but as long as you regulate it, people are gonna still try to circumvent regulations. You can educate people, but unless you make it cool, are they really gonna pay attention?
1: Yeah, well, that's a good point that you're saying that, uh, you know, <clears throat> you get people to change through design, which I think is an excellent point. Uh, you know, the also, uh, it's cost, um, uh, you know, you could argue that, well... Um, back to your first question where you were saying, you know, how much, you know, do you spend more or do you spend less on some of these green things? I think that still it's, you can, if people are going to make a choice on a hot water heater, you can, you can say, well, you have to know that these products are available, uh, but a heat pump hot water heater and a gas tankless are about the same price point. So, you know, as long as you're able as a, as a subcontractor or something to offer that and know those choices, you can help people make changes. So, a hot water heater is never going to be uh, sexy, but uh, you know you can you can address that through uh, the cost issue. And of course, the more people, it's like with wind energy. You know, wind energy has come down so much. Uh, you know, Texas is one of the great. Uh, Texas, one of the great, you know, carbon states, is now one of the greatest wind producer states. Um, that's because the kilowatt hour cost of wind has come down so much. Uh, so, you know, we can address. We have to address things through cost and through design. So, um, and you know, the design is is exposure, and the cost is education. You know, we have to educate people what the choices are and what the costs of those choices are. Um, but, you know, the Tesla market is, uh, you know, uh, I mean, why are, I guess the question to you would be, uh, yes, Tesla is uh, sexy and uh, innovative, but it's still, you know, if you only had that car, um, it would be a sort of probably more liberal, progressive people, you know, uh, who are, and, and up till recently, people with more money would be buying those things. But why is it that uh, GM is going to go, Uh, You know, why are car manufacturers in China and the United States moving towards all electric fleets? There's a reason. And actually, you know, what is that? What is that reason?
0: How how do you mean? I mean, well, in other words, people are
1: making choices that are not just design related, but people are seeing that, uh, you know, that the future of uh, of uh, personal vehicles is going to be uh, is going to change away from the internal combustion engine and uh you know people are just seeing the long-term trends are towards electric vehicles now i think that that's because of uh self-driving vehicles and all those kinds of innovations are going to drive are driving that market but but vehicle manufacturers are moving away from the internal combustion engine
0: well listen i i think it's it's an interesting point you bring up i think that that's true and i think that the reason the manufacturers are moving away from from gas vehicles is because companies like Te- Tesla came out now Tesla made it cool and then once all the other manufacturers saw what Tesla was doing they had to compete that's a market share issue now if GM would have would have had the the intelligence to see what it was doing and the demand that could that could take place. What they basically saw is they were renting the vehicles, but that these vehicles had such a longer lifespan than the gas vehicles that they were producing, that it could basically put them out of business because a car wouldn't, you know, wouldn't be off the road in 10 years. That car would be off the road in 40 or 50 years, you know, because it was more efficient and it it wasn't uh, the wear and tear on the vehicle wasn't so, so hard. So you look at where we are now and you think, where would we be if, 30 years ago, GM had actually embraced this instead of, you know, made it a joke and destroyed them, literally destroyed all of the vehicles. I think there's, there's a handful left. There's maybe 10 around the country. I think the Peterson uh, Automobile Museum, Automotive Museum has two of them. Um, There are some private collectors, I think, who have them in the garage. You won't see them for another 50 years, then they'll pop up at auction. But those vehicles were all destroyed. And I think to your point now that why are they moving away from gas vehicles? Two reasons. And I think they both speak to what we're talking about here as it relates to design. One is because the trend has made it cool to drive this vehicle. And that's that I, I attribute completely to design and marketing for that. Because um, the vehicles were already were already better. The technology was already better than a, than a gas vehicle. So it took design and marketing to make that more acceptable and and appealing to the general public. The second reason that I think things are changing so quickly is because there is a millennial effect taking place where, where you have an entire generation that really has very little interest in driving. Many of them don't have their driver's license. Uh, the, the proliferation of the gig economy and Uber and Lyft in particular has made it so that people don't have to own their vehicles anymore. Once you don't need to own your vehicle anymore, I think it completely changed the nature of the industry. And I think the industry has been trying to figure out how they're gonna survive. In the process, you have, uh, and I would use Ford as a great example moving forward, what they did with the F-150. They made the body aluminum out of out of, out of steel. They they went with electric versions of the F-150, the most popular truck in the world for in, in all history, right? They also put a generator on that vehicle that you saw during the recent issues in Texas with the ice storm. You had people living, literally living and running their homes off the generator that they installed. And it's amazing. Right? So you have them also taking something, the cool factor making a mustang completely electric. Amazing. So now you 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 take those lessons and you look at the the home industry. And I think your point about um, water heaters is a great example. I actually looked and and did a comparison on the on the water heater because at one time we were looking at getting one. What I didn't realize is is initially, to take an apples to apples, look at one. It's the fact that you have to maintain it and the filters that you have to, that you have to add. And there is maintenance required there. And I think it's so close, but it's not there yet. And I, that's what For I think. What are you,
1: com- what are you comparing?
0: Uh, the, the on-demand water heater to a uh, tankless to tank.
1: Mm-hmm right did you, did you compare the uh, heat pump hot water heater tank because you know the that's uh, do you, uh, the heat pump hot water tank is uh, you know heats your water through uh, you know heat exchange like an air conditioner and they're very efficient then you know there's the gas tankless there's electric tankless, which is not efficient and then there's your traditional gas uh, heater and the traditional electric water heater but the heat pump hot water heater is the most efficient thing. Uh, product on the market for totally, and, totally and, and, agree. and is affordable, you know, uh, it, when you compare it to a tankless.
0: Totally agree with you. And what I will say to that is that again, until design embraces it from a design and marketing standpoint, which hasn't happened yet. That is not, look, water heaters are not sexy.
1: Yeah. How are you ever going to, how are you ever going right? to, you know, how are you going to confront a hot water heater in the design market? No, that's your education because, and cost. It's like a windmill, you know, you have to uh, educate people about the cost and, uh, you know, uh, and uh, you know, the choice uh, because there are certain things, heating your home with a heat pump or heating your water with a heat pump, hot water heater, that's never going to be sexy. But if it's you combine exactly. it with solar, you can make a argument that you're, you know, a values argument, not, you know... It, it,
0: to, your point, to your point, to your point, there was a... Um, there was a video and it's funny cause now I'm completely blanking on, um, it was, it was the, the whole, the whole electric home. Um, it was done in the fifties and the video, which is on YouTube is simply amazing. And, um, I'll have to look that up. Yeah, yeah. Look it up and do me a favor. If you're listening to this, I will, I will put the link in the show notes oh, great. to this. Yeah. So go, go check this out, but it was basically in the fifties and it was, it was this whole idea about the whole electric home. And they went through the whole thing. And obviously it was, it was you know, the, the company was selling electric uh, appliances and systems. And it was kind of like a, a show house that was all about electricity and what it, what it would do for the modern home in the 1950s and beyond. And I think when you look at it and go check it out and then come back and listen, uh, it made it cool, it made it sexy, and now what it didn't have was a solar array to sort of complete the circle, which now we have. And to that point, um, I, I think you know to put to put a bow on this, Steve, I, I think I think what you're doing is fantastic. I I we agree on on all counts, except I think methodology is maybe a little different. I, I personally would like to see more attention to, from the design and marketing side as opposed to the regulation side, because I feel like people kick back instantly when you try to tell them they can't have something, but if you make it cool, then they come to you. I agree with the,
1: yeah. Oh, go ahead. Sorry.
0: No, 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 please.
1: Oh, I agree with that. that, uh, But what we're trying to do is also, we're not trying to do it through regulation. We're because we're not a government organization. We're trying to do it through education. Let people here's the cost. Here's what it does. Here's what it does to the environment. So that when you're making your choice, you the thing is it's about impact. We need to understand that our actions have an impact on the environment. We used to think of the environment and nature as being something out there that we would go visit occasionally, but nature is in our home. Nature, we live in nature. Our body, we used to think of ourselves as this independent you know, this independent self, uh, you know, organism, but we're actually made up 40% or 50% of our, the DNA in our body is alien species, bacteria. That bacteria actually influences how we live. It, It influenced our, our, you know, evolution. So when, when we realize that nature is actually not out there, but it's within our bodies, it's within our homes, how, what we eat impacts our body, how we how we act in our homes and the choices we make impacts nature. We have to understand the impacts of what we do to our bodies and what we do to the environment. And once you begin to educate people about the impacts their decisions have on the environment, the environment is, we used to think of the environment as, as, as something that we couldn't impact. But now we understand that our choices are changing the environment, changing the climate day by day. That's what we have to educate people.
0: I love it totally agree. Uh, and with with that, that is the perfect bow to put on this thing. With that, uh, happy Earth Day and go make good choices. <laughs> Excellent. Uh-huh thank you steve for your time thank you walker zanger for your partnership and thank you for listening without you there is no joy in doing this you are appreciated my hope is to bring you inspiration and sublime design through these conversations to give you that extra push to be the most creative designer you can possibly be and i hope we did that here Please make sure you are subscribing to the show so you don't miss a single episode. You can also follow us on Instagram at ConvoByDesign with an X and ConvoByDesign.com. And remember, try anyway. Be well. And take today first.